Hello and welcome back to Stripped Bear, a podcast where two students at Bowdoin College lament, laugh, and learn about diverse experiences at our predominantly white institution. I'm your host, Maya Dung-Wolf, and today I am joined by Samantha Schwimmer, who is a senior here at Bowdoin. Samantha and I actually met when we were interning at Planned Parenthood, um, not last summer, but the summer before, right? Um, And then me and my boyfriend at the time, like, jumped onto her team at Sex Ed Trivia Night, and I was super impressed with her knowledge, and um, she was definitely the reason that our team ended up winning that night. Um, and I remember thinking how cool it was um, to meet you, and um, meeting you made me really excited to come here. So welcome to the pod. Thank you. Um, Would you please introduce yourself, name, pronouns, hometown, major, and whatever you feel like is important for the audience to know? Yeah, so my name is Samantha. I use she and they pronouns. Um, I'm from San Diego, California. I'm a religion major and an anthro minor, although we've, ta- we've been on a journey to get there. Um, and yeah, I'm one of the leaders of Bowdoin Hello, as well as the Reproductive Justice Coalition and I think that's a good yeah, summary for now awesome. yeah cool. great um maybe you can start off talking about how you um like chose Bowdoin and then your initial transition here just yeah so I actually applied to Bowdoin early decision which um it wasn't because Bowdoin was my dream school by any means I didn't really have a dream school but I knew that I wanted to go to a small liberal arts school um and I mostly was looking at schools on the East Coast, and I definitely liked Bowdoin a lot. I think that I liked pretty much every other school on my list just as much, but I decided, or I guess I was told by a lot of people that it was good to apply early to a school. Um, So I decided on Bowdoin based on like very random factors, such as like number of days of some that Bowdoin College gets versus other schools or the fact that I mean my sister was really pushing me to go here because of McDreamy um yeah so that's kind of how I'm here (laughs) okay nice um and then your initial transition coming from San Diego yeah totally yeah so I had kind of a weird transition into college so I had a very difficult senior year of high school, which we don't really need to get into that much, but it just, like, was a very difficult year of my life, um, and moving all the way to Maine was definitely, I think, in some ways very helpful, and in some ways just very difficult, and I dealt with that by just kind of throwing myself into my freshman year, and, um, yeah, just kind of was super social and did a lot of different things and just tried to meet people constantly and I think it was just really exhausting. Yeah. I think when all of a sudden done, I think it was just really, really exhausting. But I think that I like also had a weird time adjusting in terms of my academic self. I think that a lot of my identity had been tied to my academic performance. Um, not necessarily like the grades I was getting 
really, but more just so that I was someone who learning was really important for, or yeah, it was really important. Learning was really important for me. And I really tied, I think, a lot of my self-worth to my interest in academics. And I think coming here and kind of wanting to maybe explore other sides of myself, but then maybe feeling like those parts began to kind of overshadow my academic interests and then kind of navigating that was really difficult. I don't, that's very big. Yeah, but. no, I think that definitely makes sense. I think um, a lot of people, like everyone here got into Bowdoin because they were like, high achieving in their high school and then to come here and everyone's high achieving it's a it's um it's a really it's really stressful and then um to your point about like constantly meeting people it is like exhausting and like freshman year it's literally just like how many people can I meet and then like I think I'm sure as you go through you narrow down your friend list oh yes definitely (laughs) lots of narrowing (laughs) So I know, as you said, you're a board member of the Hello Club here. Can you talk about your experience within this club and identifying as Jewish on campus? Yeah, so I've been on Halal board since my first year. I joined my first year spring, and now I'm really thrilled to be the president. Congrats. Congrats. It's kind of (laughs) It's weird because it's like, um, so my co-president is not on campus, which is really interesting or just like weird to navigate that, but um, yeah, definitely not the year we envisioned for ourselves. But I think that, I mean, Halal is kind of a weirdly situated group on campus because we're part of the 30 college kind of coalition for lack of a better word. And so we've, during my time, have kind of been shuffled around to fit under like a larger multicultural umbrella. Um, We've been thrown together with some of the other affinity groups but then also been thrown together with some of the religious groups and I think that part of the problem for Halal is that we don't really fit in either category neatly because I mean obviously like or not obviously but like Judaism and Jewish people don't really neatly fit into kind of like religious affinity especially like we would get kind of put a lot with like the Christian student union or the Catholic student union which is they're, they're lovely people it's nothing against them but they're like clubs serve a very different purpose on campus and their members um have very different reasons I think for being a part of the club than um Jewish students who choose to kind of become part of a little experience and I, th- I think that they're it, it's it's interesting something a conversation we've had a lot during our time or my time here is kind of how to make halal a more inclusive space because i think the narrative around jews on campus is that they are predominantly white and that um almost like being jewish i think often gets equated with being white and wealthy on this campus um and while that is certainly true and there are a lot of people who fit into that box um to a certain extent like there are also a lot of Jews of color on this campus that really get erased. And I think that it's something that I would like to see continued on is like kind of this shift in terms of what being Jewish means on this campus and what people associate with being Jewish. I think, I mean, Judaism is weird because it's such a tiny religion 
and there just really aren't that many Jewish people in the world. And they, a lot of Jews cluster in um, New York or LA or like various American cities. Um, but I grew up in a city that really there weren't that many Jewish people. And so my experiences and how I understand my own Judaism, I think are very different than someone who grew up in the Upper West Side where they were just kind of surrounded by Jews. And so it's like, it's always been really important to me to find Jewish community because I've always felt like a hyper minority. Um, because I, for almost, for my entire education, I was like one of two or one of one Jewish students in my grade. And so it's just kind of like finding community, Jewish community where I can has always been really important for me. And, and I think at Bowdoin, like, there are a lot more Jewish students here than where, where, I, where I've gone to school previously, but it's still a small group. And I think it just creates like, it's a really weird group of, it's, it's, it's hard to like know where we fit that in, if that makes sense. No, I, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. Um, what, maybe this is a dumb question, but what do you, what do, you do like in Hello? Oh, no, that's a, not a dumb question at all. That's like a good question. So, yeah, so we do a lot of different things in Hillel. Um, our, I'd say our, like, standard meeting, or it's not even really a meeting, really, but we, every Friday night, um, which is Shabbat in Judaism, which starts Friday at sundown and, and Saturday at sundown, we do a candlelighting service where we light candles and drink wine and eat challah. Um, and before COVID, we used to, like, eat dinner, which we would either cook or go to the dining hall together um and so that's kind of our standard weekly meeting that probably anywhere between like 15 and 20 people come to and then we also do larger events for the Jewish holidays so we do something at Hanukkah we do something for the hot we do services for the high holidays we do which are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and those happen in September and October usually depending and then we will pass over seders in the spring um and then we also try to do different events there for a while we were doing jewish women's dinners that was like my first and second year here and we've done different discussions around israel palestine um and we've done we've we've partnered with different organizations um in the like the local community both like Jewish organizations and non-Jewish organizations to do different events. So yeah, kind of a mixture of different... I'd say it's like a mixture between like a holiday-focused group and also like really community-driven, um, less structured around like... I Like I think other... That's why I don't think we really fit neatly into like the affinity group category because I think that those groups tend to do like a meeting where they talk about a specific topic, which we don't really do ever. Um, not that we don't talk about things as they come up um but it's much more structured around kind of just like fostering community and then conversations happen within that space it's not it's usually not designed that way though okay that makes sense okay awesome um and then I guess going off of that like do you feel supported and like seen on campus in relation to your religion do you feel like Bowdoin does a good job, or do you feel like it's a, I don't know, like, mostly just recognizing, yeah. like, Christian holidays, or, yeah. That's a good question. Um, I think that I personally feel supported, because I think my Judaism is kind of, like, when people think of mainstream Judaism, I think they think of me, 
like I look very visibly, which is a really problematic thing. But like when people like, because there's no such thing really as looking Jewish. Um, but I think that I've been told my entire life that I look really visibly Ashkenazi Jewish or that I look Jewish. Um, which yeah, that is really loaded, and <laughs> we don't need to get too into that. But um, and I think that like I'm not particularly observant. I don't like observe this I don't observe the Sabbath so like I use technology during Shabbat and I like do work during Shabbat and I don't keep I mean I'm a vegetarian but I don't keep kosher that's like my Judaism is um more assimilated into American culture and so I like pretty seamlessly fit into this space but I think that both for like for Jews that maybe are more observant like there really aren't It'd be very difficult to keep kosher here. It would be very difficult to observe the Sabbath here. It would be very difficult um, to be more observant mm-hmm. on this campus. And I definitely know that we don't really have a ton of students who are particularly observant. But, like, for students who do keep kosher, I know that that has been something that's really challenging yeah. in the space. And I think, I mean, I will say it is difficult to not have the high holidays off, I think, for a lot of students. Um, just because I think a lot of professors don't really, even even if a professor is okay with something missing class, they don't really understand how difficult it is to make up that work. Um, or there's kind of this assumption that you would just do work on that day when, like, really that's not the point of that day. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that, and professors, like, assign work oftentimes literally on those days like that'll be it's always early in the year so I've had days where like that's my first assignment due for the class and it's like couldn't you have made that do like the class before or the class after to like put something on that day it's like tough um but I'd say like in general I feel really supported and we are very lucky to have Eduardo who like really has done an excellent job of looking out for us um He's the, he's a spiritual... Yeah, so he's the director of spiritual... He also, he's like 10 job titles right now, which I do not know all of them, but he, in terms of Hillel, he kind of, yeah, he oversees um, religious and spiritual life, but yeah, I'd say that I definitely think that there are ways that the campus could be more supportive um, or just like more inclusive of more observant Jews, but also I think like the campus could be a lot more inclusive of Jews who don't fit the mold of what people think of when people think of Jews because I think there's just a lot and I think that this it comes a lot from Hillel but also just from other places on campus like there are a lot of Jews of color on this campus who just I think feel very excluded both from Hillel but also just from I don't really know exactly how to put this but I think just like feel ostracized through their Jewish identities and I think that that's something that I would like to see change or it's like definitely something I would like like to see obviously like with yeah hope that that changes I think that's I hope that that's something that people really focus on yeah I feel like in regards to like assignments and professors assigning assignments on holidays like I feel like that would be hypothetically an easy fix right yeah like they could definitely do that um so it's I it must be frustrating to yeah well it's like it's hard to I I think it's so this is when my like little religion major hat comes on but it's like this place claims to be a secular institution or like a non whatever institution and it's like 
but obviously it's like rooted in Christianity. Yeah. Which is fine. Like I almost wish that was acknowledged because I think that that's like, I think that's what becomes really frustrating is it's like, okay, like, so I went to an Episcopal high school and it kind of made sense. Like, of course, Judaism isn't going to be prioritized above everything else. Um, because it's not a Jewish institution. Like, I chose to go to an Episcopal school. But here it's, like, this is supposedly a secular institution. But, and I don't, like, think that I'd expect Judaism to be put ahead of other things. But it's, like, you could, like, what would happen if our break didn't coincide with Christmas? Right. Um, And I think, like, also I thought, like, Ramadan has been over finals, like, pretty much every single year that yeah. I've been here and I like I know that that's going to change just literally because of the calendar but it's like to make students who are fasting um take exams is just kind of crazy and it's like I think just a lot I think one of my criticisms of Bowdoin as a whole is like there's just kind of a lack of creativity across the board and like people are really rooted in oh we have to do something this way instead of like okay how can we imagine a community that works for everyone and like maybe we don't need a finals period or you know like they're like you don't right. have to do it the way that we've always done it I think that there are ways we could do it where like students get to set their own deadlines throughout the right. semester to then make it that they don't have work during a major religious holiday or like during a mental health crisis or during whatever else like I think that that there are ways to imagine an academic calendar that would actually give people the flexibility to address their needs Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um that makes sense and I feel like I agree with that um and in regards like to this year and I don't know if it's every year like um I am I don't practice any religion I'm not particularly religious obviously but I grew up as an Episcopalian and um like my family celebrates Easter and like I know we didn't have an Easter break and obviously Easter is on a Sunday but anyway so we would have it off but I also I wanted I guess I wanted to have that Easter break but and that's maybe um I guess a a glimpse of what I can understand about um, not having religious holidays yeah. off. Um, but I, yeah, it's definitely, it's very interesting. Um, I, I think Bowdoin, I, <laughs> yeah, it definitely, this institution is rooted in Christianity and it's interesting that they can't seem to acknowledge that or yeah. take, responsibility for that and, or, and actively try to do better switching gears maybe a little bit um what part of your identity do you feel is most difficult to navigate here um i so like obviously every aspect of your identity impacts the other aspects of your identity but like for me like I sometimes feel more conscious of my gender mostly in academic spaces but in social in social spaces I'm like more aware of my race and I was curious if you had a similar experience or yeah that's I think a really good question um hmm I think I'd say probably gender and sexuality um maybe less than sexuality but I think gender here is really 
I don't know exactly how to, so I, like, like, I guess we can situate this. So I grew up in California and my high school was really, it's in a town or not town. It's in, a, this is my little East coast. I've been here for too long. Um, it's in a part of San Diego called La Jolla, which it's like called the village of La Jolla technically, but it's just a neighborhood, um, in San Diego. And it's, like, very stereotypical California. We have, a, like, it's a lot of, like, tall, skinny, blonde, like, blue-eyed women and surfer, muscular, like, beach men. Um, that's kind of what the, the gender binary, how that plays out. And so it's, like, very... Um, it was, like, when I first came to college, and I don't really... This is going to kind of, like, steer, but I think we're going to get back there, but... When I first came to college, I, like, felt attractive, I think, for, like, the first time really in my life in a weird way because, like, I had never fit into the beauty standard of where I grew up. And I don't think that I fit into the beauty standard at Bowdoin either, but I felt that the beauty standard was, like, a lot broader here than it was where I am from, which is weird. Like, I had said that in an anthropology in my intro, in my intro anthropology class, and my professor's like, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that that they felt that the beauty standard was broader here um uh, I I actually agree with that I really? th- it's something that I never really thought of until you said it but I definitely I also feel like I'm more attractive here than I was seen in high school mm-hmm. and because there's I mean there's just more diversity here and maybe um I think also like being an Asian woman on a predominantly white campus also has there's also aspects of fetishization yeah there which is a whole nother conversation but I I I agree with you yeah well I think that that's so actually that's a good segue kind of because I think what like ended up happening for me was it's just like I felt attractive but also simultaneously really objectified and like I felt that a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of theories about, like, how, like, sexual and social capital works in the, on this, in the space, but I think that there's this really disgusting phenomenon where, like, first-year women and senior men are the people on campus with the most sexual capital, mm-hmm. and so, and for women, your sexual capital decreases every single year that you're here, and for men, your sexual capital increases every single year that you're here, and then you infuse that with, like, intersecting elements such as like right race also sexuality to a certain extent because I think this is the kind of right that's like a very heterosexual structure that I've just kind of created for us and then but yeah so I I think that like within that it's like a lot of my self-worth that I had once kind of like put in terms of my like academic studies and stuff then kind of got attached to like my not even appearance, but my, like, attractiveness, almost, and, like, that then, I think, really almost, like, I became dissociated from myself in a way, because it was, like, the me who I wanted to be, and the me who I, like, thought of me as, versus, like, the me that, like, was consumed by men, essentially, and, like, I think that gender the gender I don't want to use the word binary but like the way that gender is constructed on this campus is really 
subtle almost because I think that there is a lot of gender fluidity that's allowed but then it's still really boxed into these kind of different categories almost and I like this is I don't know this is really making that much sense but I think that for like to relate it back to my own experiences I think that I felt like to perform femininity in this space was to behave in a very certain way and was like very much centered on gaining the attention of men which I think then kind of ties in back into my sexuality because I think that I like probably didn't explore my like not even explore but it's like I didn't like lean into my queer identity as much as I kind of wish I had and I like mostly really only dated men even though I was or even though I am like really attracted and interested in women it just or in just like people in general and I think that like I've done a lot of thinking about my own gender over quarantine and stuff just because I was like removed it was like the first time that I kind of was like constructing my understanding of my gender like outside of an institution like I wasn't at Bowdoin I wasn't at my high school I was like just at home (laughs) with my parents and like it was nice to be able to like exist as a person in a space that wasn't like defining that if that makes sense I don't really know that I answered the question no that was there's a lot of um yeah I a lot of what you said I think resonated with me and like like we t- we've talked about a lot on the podcast like there's such a big hookup culture here mm-hmm. and like I un- like how I viewed it and maybe this is just also just how I perceived it is like your worth is so rooted in like oh like who did you hook up with this weekend yeah. and like being able to like say like oh I've hooked up with so and so and so and so and um definitely like the it's more quote-unquote impressive to be able to say, like, oh, I hooked up with a senior mm-hmm. boy yeah, versus, yeah. like, oh, I hooked up with someone in my grade. And it's definitely interesting. Um, and it's something I, like, have also struggled to navigate. And when I first came into Bowdoin, I was, like, as, like, we've talked about, like, I kind of, I was just out of a relationship and I was, like, interested in meeting people. And then in the beginning, I... I didn't receive I didn't receive a lot of attention and then um like later on like have gotten a lot of attention mm-hmm. and then I I was weirdly I guess like proud of that and then reflecting and like it's okay I guess to, like obviously to be proud of that but yeah. I also reflected inward and like maybe like hanging out with like these like men don't actually like I don't know how to describe it like they don't actually like feed the need that like yeah. I, I, I want yeah, yeah. Or I'm after um and but there is such um a weird like sexual capital as you said here on mm-hmm. this campus um and then like yeah do you have any more like I guess like thoughts about hookup culture here on campus so many thoughts (laughs) too many thoughts um I think like the short of it and I actually talked about this kind of recently with people but I so I'd say like I'm a very like sex positive person I think that people should have sex like when they want to with a 
Yeah, and I would say, like, even with a person who wants to, but I think sex inherently implies that consent was involved. So, and I think that people... I think that it's also, like, okay to have sexual experiences that weren't good in the sense that, like, I... So it's, like... I don't know how to... Like, yeah, there are, like, hookups that I look back on, and I'm like, yeah, that was bad. Not because, like... Obviously, there's a difference between, like... There are, like, many different types of bad, and so I'm, like, more explicitly talking about, like, a hookup where, like, maybe the sex just wasn't that good, or, like, we ended up not really talking that much afterwards, or, like, things got weird between us, or whatever, and, like, I think that I'm okay having, like, I don't regret those experiences, because I think that it helped me get to a point where, like, now I really do know what I want sexually, and I do know what I want in a relationship, and, like, I'm able to advocate for those things for myself and like I think that I'm someone who like needed to go through the kind of like exploration and discovery of it all I think that the parts of hookup culture that really bother me are one the way that people talk about it and I'm very guilty of this right where it's like kind of going back to what you were saying of like I hooked up with this person this weekend and I think what's I was talking to one of my friends who is a gay man and we were talking about the way that women on this campus talk about sex explicitly. Where, like, I think a lot of the times people think, talk like, in culture, talk about, like, men shitting on their sexual partners. But I actually think on this campus, women oh. really, really, really shit on their sexual partners. Um, <laughs> I've had so many conversations with my women friends where they'll talk about, like, a sexual partner's penis size and, like, make fun oh, of it. Okay. Or talk about, like bad sexual performance of a man or like also in queer spaces like mm. queer women or queer people talking about their like femme or women partners really negatively and like um. I think that whereas like my friends who are men that I talk to about their sexual experiences like usually don't talk about any details like it's usually just like oh yeah I hooked up with this person it was fine mm-hmm. or like oh I hooked up with this person it was like meh <laughs> and I think that, that might say more about, like, the, the spaces that I occupy than it does about, like, Bowdoin campus as a whole. But I think that, like, it's, like, I, I just think that, like, this, that hookup culture necessitates, like, communication. Or, or not even hookup culture, but, like, hooking up with someone. Mm-hmm. A casual sexual encounter, like, requires a lot of communication. And I think that people just, like, really, really struggle with that. And I think that that's what I would want to normalize. So it's, like, yeah. communication going into the encounter. So, like, talk, like... Which, in, obviously, consent is a part of that, but also, like, checking in afterwards. Yeah. Like, and not in a, like, creepy way, but, like, if you, like, have sex with someone, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, checking in with that person. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, just normalizing those conversations of, like, talking about sex and not talking about, like, the details of sex, but, like, talking about, or, like, sorry, like, not talking, like, this is what we did, this is what his dick looked like. Like, I don't think, like, that we need to normalize, but, like, talking about having sex and what, like, not in the, like, I scored this, but kind of more just, like, checking in with yourself about the sex that you're having, I think would be really valuable. And I think that, like, the most successful casual sexual relationships that I've had have been ones that were, like, really grounded in both people talking about what we were doing right like before we did it after we did or during like while we were doing it and after and like I think it just took me a really long time to get to that point and I think that 
a lot of people enter sexual relationships on this campus from such a place of insecurity, anxiety, and fear, and, like, think that if they say anything wrong, that it'll be so embarrassing, and then they end up just, like, assuming things, which is much more harmful. Right. I... I, I agree with that. I feel like people don't want to, like, quote-unquote, ruin the mood or, yeah. right, be awkward um, in fear of, like, oh, like, if I say something, like, maybe they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. going to decide against, like, yeah. hooking up with me or whatever it is. Um, and in general, I, I think on the communication afterwards aspect, mm-hmm. like, there's such, with hookup culture, there's such a glamorized, like, idea of being unattached and like not following up and just being like uh what either a one-night stand or like I only reach out to you when like I want to hook up with you and and in no other context am I interested in your life uh your backstory like any other Mm -hmm. aspect about you um and I I really don't like that and I think, like, people equate, like, getting to know someone as, like, being romantically interested or, like, being interested in something further than hookups. But when in reality, I... I, Well, I personally believe, like, I've had the best, like, sexual experiences with people, like, I actually know a little bit about instead of just, like, people I, like, know nothing about and, like, don't really care about Mm -hmm. their life. And... Not in the way that I want to seriously date them, but just, like, I know a little bit about yeah. their backstory. And I think just, like, um, I don't know, like, normalizing that, like, getting to know your partner. If yeah. you want to. For some people, maybe, for some people it might not work like that. I'm, I'm not sure. But I'll, but going back to your idea about, like, putting on effort and, like, showing that, I guess, that you care in yeah. some sense. Well, I yeah. think it's also just, like, I really like what what you said about kind of people struggling to compartmentalize, right, their, like, romantic and sexual life, and I think that it's, like, I wish that it was more normal on this campus, and I, like, I think that there are a lot of people, like, I've had, like, casual sexual experiences with people where, like, we were able to maintain, like, almost a friendship throughout where it's like we weren't dating like we weren't it wasn't serious it was like very centered around like fun but it was definitely also this expectation that we would check in on each other like before during after and that we would like talk about our lives and that it wasn't you know and I think that just like I had um a sexual encounter with someone it was like just a one it was like essentially a one night stand I mean it was a one night stand but like the way that he handled it I think actually could be like a really good okay like wasn't perfect but like I think it was a good model where it's like before before anything happened he kind of like laid out what his expectation was for like our encounter essentially where he's like look like I think you're really great and like I think you're really fun and blah 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 but like like I'm not looking for anything serious like this is like whatever like yeah kind of laid out what his expectations were before anything happened Mm -hmm. which like I think a lot of people would be like really afraid to do but I think that what that did for me was then it's like I know exactly like when I'm in that room I know exactly what to expect and like I know exactly like what I'm getting from that encounter and like I mean my wants were like really in line with his so then it ended up like really working because there I wasn't like 
sitting around waiting for him to text me or like wondering what had what I did wrong or whatever. Like I'd like we both knew what was happening. And then when we saw each other around afterwards, like it was very casual and we could be friends and it was not, you know, whereas like I've had other encounters with people who like at the end would be like, oh, like this was so fun. Like, I think you're so great. Like I'm going to text you tonight or like I'm going to text you tomorrow or I'm going to text you like this week and we should do this again and then would never hear from them again. And it's like, okay, like obviously you felt obligated to kind of, like, give me that sliver or whatever when, like, really I only wanted, like, a casual right thing from them, but then because they, like, placed that expectation, I then was, like, disappointed when it didn't happen. And I think, so, like, I just think that, like, being honest with your sexual partners and open about what it is is crucial. And as awkward as it might seem, like, in the long run, I think that that just leads to, like, a much healthier relationship to your own sex life. But also, like, it just shows a greater deal of care for your sexual partner or partners i that makes yeah that makes sense um i yeah i think yeah i think there is an obligation to be like oh we'll we'll do this again and like it doesn't have to be that way um and I also, I, I feel obligated after to like, even if I literally have no interest in seeing this person mm-hmm. ever again, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll see you next time just to like, but I guess I with reflecting on that. Like I need to stop doing that if I'm not actually interested mm-hmm. in like seeing them again, which is really hard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because I think that that's the other piece of it is like women are socialized to never upset Mm-hmm. a sexual partner or a man doesn't really matter and like to never like like you're supposed to kind of like play the perfect girlfriend even when you're not the per- like even when that's not your role right in the space yeah and like I I think like in that moment like he would probably take it personally right if I was like mm-hmm. yeah so maybe I'll never see you again like yeah. he, he would probably take offense to his sexual performance I'm not yeah really, even if that had nothing to do with it and I just yeah which like, is why I think that that's like the before conversation is crucial because then it's not about it's not tied to anyone's sexual performance like it literally is grounded in like let's like talk about what we're about to do so that we're both doing because I think that that's right it's like when we talk about consent in terms of like sexual encounters we just talk about consent but when we talk about consent in terms of like research it's like informed consent and I think that like I would love to see like normalization around like informed consent where like people know what they're consenting to and that extends beyond the sex itself because I think that like sex is tied to so many other things and like or not even sex like not even whatever not like penis and vagina sex but like when you, like, are intimate with someone, like, that gets wrapped up in so many other things. So, it's, like, before you agree to that intimacy, like, I think it's only fair to know what mm-hmm. that entails. And that doesn't mean you have to, like, plan your marriage, like, plan your wedding. <laughs> right. with like, it doesn't, you don't have to, like, be thinking steps ahead. But it's, like, I think good to just, like, check in. And it's okay to say you don't know what it is. Right. But it's, like, just to have that honesty. And it, mm-hmm. when you're going into that encounter, I think it's just so important. Yeah. Do you feel like it's easier in the pandemic or harder? Because... Like, I almost think it's easier mm-hmm. because you actively have to reach out to people, like, if you want to see them yeah. versus, like, meeting someone casually at a party. Yeah. Like, you're just, like, go- going back to their room, like, kind of, like, okay, like, we'll see yeah. where this goes versus intentionally yeah. inviting I someone. I think it's probably easier, yeah. 
Yeah. So switching gears a little bit. Um, so I know over the summer, the Title IX regulations, um, which I guess for listeners, if you don't know, which basically prohibits sex-related discrimination, changed uh, all institutions. Um, and then you, Samantha, made a, an important infographic um, ex- like explaining these changes. Um, and then in general, Title IX now serves to protect like the victim and the perpetrator, right? pretty yeah. much equally yeah. I mean I'd say that that's like a good I, so I, I would say that like Title Nine has always or at least the way that Bone has interpreted Title Nine in the time that I've been there that's kind of not always how it's designed to be but like that's just an, the nature of how it works because both people are students so both people get protections um yeah, I mean, I can. T- so the biggest changes were that now there are live hearings as part of Title IX, which there's a lot of research that demonstrates that that's like particularly traumatizing, or like a live hearing is particularly traumatizing for survivors um, of sexual assault, and that there was a change in the definition of sexual harassment. Um, and there are lots of other like smaller changes, but I think that those are the two like biggest changes. Yeah. How do you think, like, the pandemic has changed things in regards to, like, victims coming forward? Like, for example, like, coming forward with a complaint now basically, Mm -hmm. like, reveals that, like, an individual is not, like, following COVID guidelines, at least, like, on this campus. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, if you, um, if the perpetrator was someone, like, outside of your designated pod. Mm -hmm. And that, like, goes, like, um, similarly, like, um, in terms of, like, drug and alcohol use, like, outside of the pandemic, yeah. well, in the pandemic, too, um, but I think, like, like, I guess in my experience, like, the Title IX office or the staff, like, trained to aid victims of sexual violence aren't, like, worried about, like, I guess the perhaps illegal things or the rules that, like, someone, like, went against, like, solely, and, like, are more solely focused on the assault, um, but I think it's, like, definitely, difficult to know to know that yeah um and like Bowdoin doesn't like make that clear that you're not going to get in trouble because yeah. you like were drunk while the assault happened like I yeah yeah so we do so there's a very in in my work over the summer especially like the beginning of the school year like that was something that I really like harped on because the amnesty policy is incredibly vague and I think that the amnesty policy being vague worked in a pre-covid world because it included, you know, it's like, we're going to protect you unless, like, someone else was in danger, essentially. That's a paraphrase, not perfect. But, and that worked because it meant that, like, if you had two drinks or three drinks or four drinks or five drinks, like, it didn't really matter. Or if, like, whatever. Like, if you were at a party that alcohol was being served to minors, like, it didn't really matter. It's, like, the only times where that would matter is if you were, like, threat like I don't even really know like I think they've used it like once or twice as an exception it would have to be like you were like committing like felonies probably <laughs> like so it's yeah. like you know and it, whatever so it's not it it wasn't really an issue that the AMC policy was vague until in COVID when like suddenly danger to others mm-hmm. involves a lot more yeah and there just wasn't 
really a lot of clarity from the administration as to what that means and different administrators would say different things and there was a lot of like wink wink Mm -hmm. um which for me was really frustrating and I think for a lot of people it was really frustrating because it's like if you're not like either don't have an amnesty policy or have an amnesty policy and it's like there just needs to be a little bit more clarity for people in terms of what that looks like and I think that I mean I genuinely think that Benji and Lisa, and Lisa's not even really part, Lisa's separate from Title IX, but, like, Benji and Lisa really do want what's best for students on this campus. And, like, I do really believe that, but I think that there's a lot of times where, like, it gets caught up in the bureaucracy of Bowdoin and in legal jargon, and we're at a point where, like, there isn't a clear, like, I can't tell someone that, like, coming forward, if they were breaking a bunch of rules, won't prevent them from then getting in trouble for those things because I haven't really gotten anything from any administrator that has indicated that that's like definitely true and that's incredibly frustrating and it's incredibly dangerous because within the context of this bubble that we're in like sexual violence becomes I think that much more pervasive and dangerous because like you could be like a sexual like sexual violence within a pod is mm-hmm. something that could totally happen and then you're stuck with that person for forever and yeah. you know and, and right so there's just a lot of like or it's like doesn't even have to be your pod it could be your floor it could be your building or whatever it is mm-hmm. and like I think that that just becomes so dangerous and I think that the college's response to COVID was like we need to focus on COVID and that's our top priority and everything else is going to kind of fall by the wayside Mm -hmm. which makes sense but then it's also like that's unfortunately not even necessarily the biggest threat on campus and how do you kind of grapple with that where it's like we've really successfully been able to mitigate a lot of the risk of COVID and it's not that it isn't still a risk and it's not that we shouldn't still care about it it's not that we shouldn't keep up all the things that we've been doing but it's like in many ways, sexual violence is a much more pervasive risk. Mm-hmm. And it's not being addressed at the level that it needs to be. And, like, I think that this campus, again, like, it kind of goes back to this creativity issue where it's, like, there's so many different ways of addressing sexual violence on this campus that just aren't done. Where it's, like, you could really easily hire a counselor who specializes in PTSD after, like, sexual assaults. Like, that is, there are tons of people who exist that do that. And the college could, I'm assuming, fairly easily hire someone. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And the college could hire someone in the Title IX office who specifically focuses on restorative justice. Because I think that a lot of what people end up doing when they experience sexual violence is to turn to restorative justice in some form. Um, I've had a lot of friends and have my own experiences doing that informally, like outside of the Title IX space. Um... And they have an alternative resolution process, which kind of mirrors a restorative justice model. But, like, how amazing would it be to have someone in that office whose sole job it was to, like, handle sexual violence through restorative justice practice? Mm-hmm. And, like, there are, you know, the fact that we have, like, one person who's in charge of Title IX, and that's not even his only job, is crazy. Yeah. And the fact that we only have one person on campus whose job is to, like, support whose, like, only job is to do gender violence prevention is also crazy. And, like, I know that Kate Stern 
and a drawing can end up doing a lot of that work, but like that's not their only job, and they have lots of you know. So it's like the like I just that so much more could be done, and I like I talked to President Rose like personally like yeah. during this event that happened last year where I kind of like called out rape culture on this campus, mm-hmm. and like I just it's really frustrating that we just think so in the box when it comes to this and it really comes down to like a legal system and like mm-hmm. what the Bowdoin lawyers think right yeah I mean it is crazy that I, I, I agree with you I think that there should be more staff like hired that solely focus um like mm-hmm. on sexual violence and I didn't really even consider that um I guess counts uh, like getting a counselor mm-hmm. there's a I mean there's a there's a counseling problem on this campus yeah, anyway yeah, yes. in regards to mental health in general um and so pushing for a specific counselor at this moment right now I just like don't really see happening um but it it's so it it's obviously frustrating to be at a college um who where like you're supposed to feel safe and you're supposed to feel protected but yet the system like seems to fail you consistently um and then I guess one of my other questions was um do you think that Bowdoin fosters a rape culture and I guess you agree with that yeah I definitely think I mean I think that there's not a single university in America that doesn't like I just think that like we're so entrenched in a culture that normalizes and perpetuates sexual violence and I think a lot of that is gender-based but I think that especially at Bowdoin there's a lot of sexual violence against men that just gets completely brushed aside and like not talked about and I think that a lot of right kind of going back to this idea of like communication that's lacking like I've had a lot of like I think that sorry this is kind of a second I think that a lot of women are kind of taught before they come to college that like they're at high risk for experiencing sexual violence to stay vigilant about it maybe if they received better sexual education they would kind of understand what sexual assault is and what that like I mean for me like that was like defined for me so like whereas I think for other people they get a much more like old school definition of rape and then maybe don't understand how their experiences match up but I think like women are a little bit more prepared and it's a little bit easier to have those conversations. Whereas I think for men, like, they're not really told that sexual violence could happen to them too. And they're not really told what to look for. And I, like, I've had so many friends who are men have experiences that are sexual assaults that, like, they don't recognize as sexual assaults because, like, it doesn't fit in with what they've learned. And, like, it's not something they were told that could happen to them. And, like, I think that that's another piece of this puzzle Mm -hmm. on this campus. And, like, how do we kind of foster gender-based violence prevention that isn't just focused on gender-based violence prevention? Where it's, like, how do you kind of, like, create a culture of consent-based sexual relationships on this campus that's not even gendered? Like... Even though, obviously, gender is a huge piece of it on both sides because of the way that we construct masculinity and the way that we construct femininity. But it's, like, how do we broaden those conversations? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I definitely feel like, yeah, I mean, like, I grew up being taught, like, oh, this is not okay if this happens to you. Mm-hmm. Like, you definitely are in, you have the these, um, you can, like, pursue these processes. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know, but I'm, men obviously don't receive the same education. Um, and I think, like, Bowdoin, like, prides itself on being, like, this inclusive mm-hmm. community. And maybe I think, like, often we get in this bubble of, like, we're doing so – we're not as bad as, like, other universities yeah. or, like, you know, we acknowledge the system, but, like, we don't really, like, play into it. And I think that's really harmful because, like, we have to – like, <laughs> we participate in a system yeah. that – um where these like things happen like there's no escaping it and we can't just like hold ourselves on like a pedestal of like saying that um we're inclusive when like that's just a harmful yeah way to um think um and then sorry i had something else to say i forget what it was though (laughs) no worries um oh yeah and then in regards to education here about Mm -hmm. like um like sexual violence i feel like in orientation like they do one presentation right um where in orientation week is like so overwhelming because there's like so many presentations Mm -hmm. and then um obviously like sexual violence is an important conversation and all the conversations that happen during orientation are important but just get lumped in with all these all these presentations and then like it's just like i feel like it's kind of dropped and then, like, for the next, like, four years, like, you're supposed to rem- not, like, remember everything that happened in that presentation, mm-hmm. but, um, like, that's, that's Bowdoin being, like, oh, we yeah. did, we did our part. Yeah. yeah. And I think, like, that is just, is really frustrating. Yeah. Um, um, I'm, like, on, I'm in, um, the Bowdoin student government and, mm-hmm. um, like, in our meetings, like, we've been talking about how um, to combat this issue, and, like, mm-hmm. we had the diversity EDU course mm-hmm. um, on, like, racial um, discrimination, and, like, maybe we need to also, like, have one for sexual violence um, or and gender-based um, violence. Um, but I don't know. It's just a conversation I think that just needs to be. Yeah. Well, I think part of like the hard thing about it when it comes to, like both diversity EDU and like trainings about sexual violence is it's like a training isn't really going to ever be enough, and a training is like really not going to solve anything because so much of it is like rooted within the institution, and like you would have to really address the problems. It involves a lot of dismantling. And rebuilding. And I think that that's really scary. And, right. you know, like, Bowdoin as, ex- as it exists now will, can never be an inclusive place. And it explicitly isn't. Like, the entire point of going to a school with an 8% acceptance rate is to go to an exclusive institution. Like, mm-hmm. it is never going to be inclusive as long as it exists in this form. You know, you know like, that's just not feasible yeah that's a really good point um yeah i mean i just it's so frustrating um for Bowdoin like to present itself as an inclusive institution when it just like misses the mark um 
many in many aspects yeah Um, so yeah to end on a lighter note um what are your plans post Bowdoin (laughs) or do you not know no that's okay no that's good um so I'm doing it's just funny, a little lighter note, because it's like, what is it about? Like, my entire life. No, it's good, it's good. Um, no, sorry. No, 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 you're so fun. Um, so I am, over the summer, I'll be completing an abortion doula training program, which I'm really excited about. Um, and for the, like, I can explain a little bit about yes. what that is. So it's essentially, like, I mean, I think people, most people are familiar with, like, birthing doulas, but um, abortion doulas work. Um, before, during, and after an abortion with patients, uh, or, yeah, the people receiving abortions, um, to kind of create their abortion plan and think through, um, what a person needs to kind of go through that process, and that involves, like, a lot of spirituality and a lot of different health needs, potentially, but also just kind of really patient informed so i'm excited about that and then um i'm planning on being home probably for the year although i'm still figuring that out but exploring doing different i don't really know work and not like probably a combination of like volunteer work and some kind of job at home and then i'm planning on going to graduate school to receive a degree in counseling to hopefully oh my gosh trash um to hopefully become a restorative justice facilitator yeah yeah that's awesome um congrats that's very exciting um in the last three weeks here i'm voting crazy (laughs) um do you have a favorite memory here or like what are you gonna miss the most Mm. (laughs) i'm so worked out from this place um let me see favorite memory since we're in appleton um yeah one of my favorite, a lot of my like, like really favorite memories of this place, um, really exist on Appleton Third. I didn't even live here, but I, I mean, I lived on Appleton yeah, Third last year. Right. So two of my best friends, who I'm currently living now, lived on Appleton Third, and we would just spend like so much time here. And I'm thinking of my first snow at Bowdoin, <laughs> and we just like watched Christmas movies in bed and didn't do any work. Oh my or gosh. when there was like a blackout first year and we just like hung <laughs> out. Yeah, just a lot of like really good memories in Appleton Third. Um, yeah. But this place is filled with. It's kind of weird being back um, because it's kind of this like weird blend between like the Bowdoin before and all the like memories I have wrapped up in that and then like the Bowdoin now um, in this like weird COVID world. But I, I like, I don't know. I think that I'm really sick of this place and I. Like, <laughs> Yeah, in all her glory, and I don't know what I'll miss yet. Probably the people, but it's hard to miss them when you're with them. I guess I don't know. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being thank on you. the pod. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and for being super honest and open. Um, and to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next week. Um, in the meantime, you can follow us at Stripped Bear Pod on Instagram. Um, and yeah, okay, bye guys. Bye, thank you. <laughs>